Welcome to the podcast, episode 11, I think, of the Noel Kassler podcast. I'm back here with my podcast EP and my main man, Jimmy Kennedy, to break down the week's events. It's been one of, one of those weeks once again. <laughs> they just get crazier and crazier, folks. We thought it was going to end with Trump, and it was just the beginning, sadly. So let's break it all down. Jimmy, how are you doing today? Doing fantastic, buddy. Uh, you know, the GOP has gone full QAnon, you know, they're full on into Trumpism. We were talking off air. It's like actually getting a face tattoo. You know, you can you can joke about it and you can, you know, make fun of other people. But to actually go full on like Mike Tyson and have a face tattoo, that's where the Republican Party is right now, man. That's, I got the- that's a great analogy, Jimmy. That's a funny <laughs> joke. Yeah, they've given up on life. You know, like that's the face tattoo, the neck tattoo. Like, I don't need to work in corporate <laughs> America again. You know, I'm good here with the QAnon idiots. And and that's where they've gone. And a video came out this morning. You, you remember on episode eight, we talked about Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I said, she's like a rabid dog. Like I said, I'm telling you, it's not going to end well with her. She's going to end up assaulting somebody. You know, if you were the principal of a school, you would remove her if she was your teacher. And and I know that because, you know, like many people, like I've worked in crowds. You know, I was part of the security when not that I'm a security guard, obviously, look at my size. But a lot of what I did in live television involved security because I was with these really high profile celebrities and you're going through crowds and through events. So I worked closely with a lot of security teams up into the Secret Service, you know, and I worked on concert tours where you would always kind of you'd have a head of security, but you'd go out and you'd keep an eye on the audience, you know, and Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of those people that you would cue in on right away. You would just single her out and you would know that person is going to be trouble. You know, even as a stand up comedian, you know, and you can take it, you would see her at one of the tables in the front row and you'd be like, oh, God, <laughs> you know, <laughs> me, me and this lady are going to tangle tonight because she's got that unhinged look. She looks crazy and she acts crazy. And that's the scariest thing is that she's been emboldened to the point where she's celebrated for being such a shrill kind of jackal. You know, she, she's like a rabid dog who's running around trying to bite AOC's ankles as she makes her way to the congressional floor. And, you know, we had a video that came out today, you know, it was sort of breaking news today. And it was from 2019. It was the same day that she said Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi should be lynched. Mm. Right. And she said, you know, and then she went to AOC's office, stuck her little like hatchet face through the mail flap <laughs> and started saying like, AOC, I know you're in there. Come out, come out. You know, like Robert De Niro and Cape Fear. You know, she went full on Cape Fear on AOC. You know, come out, come out wherever you are. It was psycho. You know, I would call the cops if somebody did that. He came to my apartment and did that. You know, and she had guys there egging her on with her, their MAGA hats and they were videotaping it. You know, they were creating content, content of trolling, bullying with undertones of violence. And that's MAGA itself. That is the face tattoo. People don't get face tattoos because they want to fit in and look peaceful in life. You know, you're not like, oh, this is going to look great at the church picnic on Sunday. You know, you tattoo your face because you want to intimidate somebody. It's like Mike Tyson. You know, you want to be scary. The Maoris did it. It's part of their culture. And it was a cool thing. But they were warriors that were doing it because it was intimidating AF, you know, and that's what (laughs) politicking has become for the GOP. It's intimidation and bullying. And it's a lot more effective than we want to admit. Well, and our favorite American fascist, Madison Cawthorn, is one of the best examples of it. You know, you had him beating up the tree. 
for content. Like that's going to make him tough. You know, these Republicans are pro-life. Yeah, you have a Republican congressman beating up a tree with Kevlar gloves on. Like it's ridiculous, you know, for uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene to go, you know, here's Johnny to AOC. Like it shows not only a lack of respect for the institution that she serves for, but a lack of maturity from just a human level. And you would expect more from a representative. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah. and Kevin McCarthy censured Justin Amash for like criticizing Trump. You know, they went crazy on Justin for, for talking out against Trump, but they're not going to do anything to Marjorie Taylor Greene. They're not going to do anything to Matt Gates. They, they still let him be on the Judiciary Committee. The guy has an impending criminal you know, whatever you call it, like the guy's going to go down, you know, one way or another, somebody's going to get arrested beyond Greenberg, who, who just accepted a plea deal last night, which means he, he had 33 charges against him. I think he accepted six charges, which means he gave somebody up, you know, mm-hmm. so it's and it, Matt Green is the next or Matt, whatever the hell his name is. Matt Green. <laughs> They're like the same person, Matt Gates, you know, but he hasn't gotten in any trouble at home. It's like, imagine if you worked in a company and you were like, yep, you know, there's talk that I, you know, smashed up eight park cars, drunk, had sex with a bunch of teenage girls, you know, and my best friend just flipped on me who's on his way to prison. Like you wouldn't walk into your office on Monday and still have all your responsibilities. You know, if you even had your job, you would be on suspension. You know, any police most police, you know, who knows with the cops these days, but most likely you would be censured in any kind of structured environment. Marjorie Taylor Greene would not be allowed to behave that way at a corporation. If you want to look at Congress as a place where all these people are employed to work on behalf of the citizens of the United States, representing each of the 50 states, which they are, and we pay their salary, then that's a place of work. You know, Mm -hmm. working in Congress means like coming together. They're working in concert with each other. You know, we're paying them to go there and accomplish some stuff. You guys hash it out. Each represent your interests and then come to a conclusion and an agreement that benefits the American people. We're not paying you to go there, stalk the hallways and stick your face into other people's mail slots and start calling them out with threats of violence. And this she sort of she was doing that same Christo fascist rap like I'm a mother of three and I resent. New York's abortion laws, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's got no place under the dome of the Capitol. That's you're bringing your religious beliefs in there. You know, the separation of church and state is for a reason. Because it allows all of us to, first of all, worship freely, because who I worship and what my religion is, is none of your damn business when it comes to being a civilian and a civic and paying my taxes and being represented fairly in government. Right. Mm -hmm. So that should be offense number one. They should censor her for that alone, for bringing that into the equation. But that's one of their major dog whistles to the Southern evangelicals and Northern too. They're everywhere now. But that's abortion is one of those issues. Abortion and guns, they can do anything they want to these Mm -hmm. people. They are holding their heads underwater. They're being drowned in their own swill in the name of anti-abortion and pro-gun and Second Amendment rights. Their rights are being stripped from them and their future is eroding before all of our eyes and they're cheering it on. And my frustration with conservatives is their ideology is, oh, we'll pull each other up by our own bootstraps and by individual will alone, I can prevail. You know, like the American dream is still alive and well in their mind, which it's not. We've seen it unfold You know, for a majority of Americans, unless you have access to money, it's difficult to 
advance yourself past whatever class you're in. My, my point is conservatives always say that they're the ones who are individually trying to advance their own interests when they don't even look internally, you know, for everything else. They, they, look, up, they look upon everyone else to solve their problems and they're just going to stay comfortable within their own bubble because they don't want to be, they don't want to have their feelings, you know, disrupted from what they're used to. It's, it's a frustrating concept. Yeah, well, it's like it plays into the whole cancel culture thing, you know, and, right. and now the big enemy is like taxes are going to get raised to pay for all this infrastructure spending. No shit. That's how you pay for stuff. You know, that's what <laughs> yeah. pays for the roads and the things that the federal government provides for its its citizens. You know, that's why we're paying taxes so it can be spent on things that benefit and protect us all. Right. right. And Republicans. They, they pl play lip service to not wanting that. In reality, they want all of that. They want corporate tax cuts. They want a world where the white man has a vote that counts more than a minority or a African-American, right? Mm -hmm. That's what all these voter suppression laws are about. They're about maintaining the status quo, which made a, you know, a minority rule the majority. You know, after slavery was ended, they put in laws to make sure that a white man would still have more power than the, than blacks, you know, in this country. That's what that's what the Electoral College is all about. That's why they split the Dakotas in two. So they would have four senators. You know, right. it's it's about making sure the playing field is anything but level because they can't compete on a level level playing field. And, and, you know, it's like this whole Bob Baffert thing. You know, the Trump was like, it's cancel culture. You know, he drugged his horses. Apparently, he'd always drugged his horses. I think they all do. I think it's one of those sports where doping is a part of it, like cycling. But the guy's clearly busted, you know, but Fox News and Trump and all these guys were up in arms this weekend. Like, it's cancel culture. No, the thing failed its drug test, you know, just like you would fail your drug test, Trump, if you ever showed us your medical records, you know, but you never did because you're a fucking drug addict. Sorry to curse. You know, it gets under my skin that like people allow this insanity. You know, that's what, you know, all these guys, Tom Cotton, all these GOP senators and congressmen, your Jim Jordans who come from these gerrymandered districts, they want to maintain the, the unlevel playing field. As I've said before, AOC terrifies them because she's beating them at their own game. She's smart. You know, she's a Latina woman from the Bronx who put herself through Boston College, you know, who won scholarships, who is clearly brilliant, clearly a gifted orator, clearly has her pulse on the future in terms of progressive politics. You know, she's an amazing woman and um, that terrifies them. So what do they send in in opposition of her? A Marjorie Taylor Greene, a rabid dog. Go yap at her ankles, you know, go chase her down the hallway. She confronted her yesterday. You know, she's or one of these days this week and, and was like, hey, why won't you debate me? Why won't you? And AOC just kept walking. But she's going to attack her. She's going to lose her stuff. You know, and we're talking about somebody who already gave out a gun, you know, who had a contest to give away an assault rifle in a state where just, you know, six weeks ago, there was a mass shooting where somebody went on a racist, you know, rampage and killed a bunch of Asian American women. Like we're, we're at a, a really... You know, we laugh about this, but we're at a scary place because this mm -hmm. thing is becoming institutionalized. You know, Trump was like this monster that split open and a thousand little monsters crawled out of his belly and scattered into the shadows of this country. That's what you're dealing with. And you see it whenever these these sort of surge trigger issues come about, like the Liz Cheney hearing this week. You know, it was, 
you know, they were all coming out from under the bed and trying to outdo each other in their racism. You know, there was a couple guys from the South and there was the guy from Texas and, you know, Chip Roy and all these people that were just like going out of their way to be more audaciously racist and to be more appealing to Trump. You know, there was two different guys this week who said that the attacks on the Capitol on January 6th look like normal tourist events to them. That wasn't a normal tourist event. I worked on Capitol Hill. I saw the crowds and the, you know, the whatever I saw the tours every day, you know, the tours are high school kids, you know, and people <laughs> from home states coming to see. And it's a fun thing to interact with, actually, you know, because people are interested in their democracy. That's not what happened on January 6th. You know, they attacked the Capitol. But and you have sitting congressmen or who are actively trying to rewrite history right in front of your eyes. It's like saying the Reichstag fire was just accident. You know what I mean? Someone left a candle burning or something, you know, so you have to be really watchful on what they're trying to do, because we're one election cycle away from them taking back the House, you know, and they're putting these laws in place. So black folks and minorities don't have the power to do what they just did in this last election. You know, that's what these things are about in Arizona and Georgia. They're about making sure that never happens again. And that the Christian white GOP racist white male and white woman get to decide who leads us. And the last time that happened, they had a 74 year old drug addict in Pampers who took all his money from the Russians and brought his kids to work in the White House where they pilfered as much as they could. You know, stole as much money as they could, brought in Steve Mnuchin and, you know like Wilbur Ross and all these guys that were clearly just trying to steal and scam, you know, and a couple of the most blatant ones had to leave early, you know, your Scott Pruitt's, you know, these guys had to leave early, but like the rest of them got a full four years of stuff in their faces, stuff in their pockets and riding off into the sunset. And now the next generation is coming in to do it. Well, and somehow Ben Carson was able to, didn't he get through all four years without resigning? Uh, point is, I remember that dining room set that he bought off of uh, the taxpayers' dime. Going back to your point that you were making about like representation in the Senate, you know, there's frustration on when it comes to conservatives with like Washington, D.C. being a state because that would allow the Democrats to have a more favorable advantage in the Senate. You have the same thing in California. You know, with the amount of population in California, imagine if you had a North and South California, you know, to to represent the people that would change things from, uh, you know, a legislative standpoint. And going back to your point about um, Marjorie Taylor Greene giving out guns, you know, we would rather give out guns than vaccinations right now when it comes to the GOP. You know, that's that's where they're at, you know, and yet they're the pro-life party to go back to my original point so far today it's it's outrageous like even if it benefits them who's against infrastructure seriously who's against infrastructure but somehow this gop is finding a way to uh be against it absolutely and they're being against it in their own home state there was an inspector who found a crack in a bridge in mississippi yesterday that was so big that when he found the crack he radioed to his supervisors and said get everybody off the bridge don't mm -hmm. let close the road and get everybody off the bridge and i saw a picture of it it was like the thing was broken in half, like the main support steel beam was had a crack straight through it, you know, and that would have been a disaster. You would have seen a headline, you know, 30 cars fall into the Mississippi River or wherever it is, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the nation is crumbling and, and they don't care because they want to grift and steal the money. And 
It's like you said, they, you, you know, abortion, they passed a law in Texas just this week that said abortion is illegal after six weeks. Most women don't know they're pregnant before six weeks. Okay. Six weeks is like nothing, you know, it, it's insane. And, and they know that the point of that is like, basically abortion is now illegal. Nobody goes and gets a pregnancy test the day after they have sex. You know what I'm saying? Like it takes a while. It's a month when you have your period. You miss your period at two weeks after that, then you might get a pregnancy test. So six weeks is just in that window where you're just going to begin to think about it. And it's nobody's business. And then, like you said, they're not they're not going to feed these kids anyway. You know, they want, you know, no abortion pro-life, but we don't want any education. We don't want any health care. We don't want any school lunch program. We don't want any after school. We don't want any preschool. You know, they don't want anything. And, and that's what I'm always saying. It's these cynical old white men who get these like American rubes, for lack of a better term. And I like these people. I'm not trying to judge these people. For the people listening at home, you hear me rant on this all the time. Like I went to high school with a lot of these people. I Not that I went to high school in a rural area, but I went to high school in a, in a kind of working class, you know, middle class area where people's dads were cops and firefighters and worked at IBM and stuff. They certainly weren't rich. They weren't too poor, but they were very white. And they were coming out of this Reagan era and they bought this kind of love it or leave it ideology and this conservative thing that you spoke about at the top of the show, Jimmy, this pull them up by the bootstraps. That's a myth. Okay, you know, the New Deal is what saved Americans and created the middle class. After World War II, it was the GI Bill that allowed a lot of these guys to come back from the war and go to college, you know, and get skills that enabled them into the middle class. Unions were what allowed them to go to a factory and make enough money that they could have three kids, two cars in the garage and a wife who stayed home based on a, a labor job, essentially, you know, a skilled labor job in a factory. And that was wonderful. And it might have lasted had the Republicans not changed course, you know, coming onto the Reagan times and saying, hey, you know, you know, they basically got a cartoon character in Reagan to come and be like, it's morning in America again, you know, and there's pictures of him bailing hay and stuff. He's a Hollywood actor who gets manicures. You know, he wasn't a tough guy. He was an actor and he was a racist actor, you know, and. But he, he was able to sell people on this thing. And in the meantime, in the back door, all the all the Wall Street raiders are buying up these companies as quick as they can. All these factories stripping them, you know, and sending the, the products overseas and getting it made in China and all over Asia and Mexico and everywhere else. Right. So they're 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 rusting these cities at the same time that they're giving them this pablum that people buy. And they bought it. They, they were able to sell people this ideology of, you know, liberalism is bad. Progressivism is bad. And it was very effective. And it became generational. And that's what Trump took advantage of. And the people that I went to high school with 30 years ago are now 50 years old and living in the suburbs and saying the same things like Cuomo's horrible. The taxes suck. The roads suck. Yeah, the roads suck because you don't want to pay taxes, <laughs> you know, like because we're not already paying enough in tax. You know what I'm saying? Like the whole taxes thing is insane. You know, and I live in a part of country where we pay a lot of taxes. You know, mm -hmm. I, I live in one of the highest tax places in all of the United States, and I have no problem with it. I know it's expensive, you know, and I know people might think I'm rich. I'm not. But you pay your fair share. You didn't get anything for free in this country if you're a white middle class male. 
and woman. You, you didn't. You, you might think you did, but you didn't. And the myth that people sell is like, I never had slaves. You know, that was something I heard as a kid all the time. Like my family, my grandfather came from Italy. You know, we never had slaves. We never got, why, why are, you know, it was this white working class, middle class resentment against the African-American community, community and minority community communities. And it was BS. You know, mm-hmm. you got a hand up just by, you know, you didn't get locked up, you know, on your way to work, driving your car, you know, like black guys do every time. You didn't get denied that job. You didn't get denied buying that house because of the color of your skin. But they did the entire time. And, mm-hmm. and he, it elects somebody like Trump. He made a living off of that. Trump and his father would write a C down on applications if somebody was black. So they didn't rent it to him. You know, he got sued by the Justice Department in the early 70s for doing that and lost, had to pay fines. You know, they protected that sort of ideology of like, we're keeping this a white neighborhood, you know, like and that was that's apartheid. You know, that's 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 segregation. And that makes the the whole of an organism much weaker, even though the people that propagate it think it makes it stronger and they think they're protecting something. They're living in ignorance and fear. And that only weakens the host eventually. And that's where we're at now. Now we're at sort of this rotted core of this husk of the American life, you know, where people are arming up and turning against their federal, you know, fellow citizens. And, and, and acting like they're in an army against the other. You know, Trump militarized racism. And we have examples in history where, where other people did that. You know, most most recently where they make really excellent sauerkraut and sausages. You know, a once beautiful country with a smart population, by the way. The Germans were a hell of a lot smarter than the Americans were at the time World War II happened. If you want to look at education and just how educated the average citizen was. And they quickly turned a blind eye, many of them, and went along with fascism. You know, so these things are more dangerous than than we think. And I, I think we're waking up a little bit to how how much of a predicament we're still in. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we're at DEFCON 1 when it comes to fascism in America, but I think we're at DEFCON 2. I mean, one thing that concerns me in my own community, the high school that I went to is about 90% white, uh, predominantly, you know, upper middle class, a lot of money flows through this city, you know, but if, if you were a person of color and you went to my high school, one of two things allowed that to happen. One, you were an athlete and your father was a coach more often than not. And this is just what I'm witnessing. I'm not speaking on anyone's behalf. This is just what I observed. Or your father was, had a privileged job. You know, he was a cop, a firefighter, an administrator within the school, you know, like, it's not a level playing field. There isn't equal access to education. And then when you have these Karens and Kevins who are offended by everything that isn't white, trying to limit the perspective that their kid can have, or they just want control over everything when it comes to their education, it adds to that fascism. And it's a, it's a deeply concerning thing that's happening all around the United States. Absolutely. And it's happening at the county level. It's happening in all these school boards. You know, they're not teaching evolution anymore. They're all up in arms against like critical race theory and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. They're trying to indoctrinate people into the American way. You know, as Trump, remember, he had all this project like the 1776 project or whatever it was going to be, you know, in opposition to the 1619 project. I think I'm getting it right. The New York Times thing that was trying to educate people on slavery. 
And, you know, what is the American way? Because it's not what you're really being taught in school. You know, when you put your hand, when I was in school, I don't know if they still do this, but you would put your hand over your heart and you would pledge allegiance to the flag every morning when, when class yeah. began. And even in third grade, I was like, this is creepy. <laughs> you know, like, what am I pledging allegiance to? Like, I'm not in us. I'm not a soldier. You know, I got bust here with my the kids I lived in my neighborhood with would all happen to be black or Latino or Middle Eastern. You know, we got bust in from a neighborhood where we don't have enough to eat half the time and people come home from school every day and get evicted. So I don't know what we're pledging allegiance to, you know, but our lives aren't so hot right now. And a lot of that is because of the policies of this nation. Right. But they were teaching you to pledge allegiance. And then they were like, you know, Christopher Columbus was this wonderful man who came here. And like, you know, <laughs> and it was like this guy was a genocidal maniac. He was a homicidal, like to the 10th degree, like seriously crazy. And he was looking for gold in the Caribbean. He didn't discover America, you know, but you're sold these myths, you know, and you're also sold like the founding fathers were these geniuses that invented like this form of democracy that never existed. And yeah, they did some good things, but they were basically like, you know, men in their late twenties that also owned slaves and had sex with them all the time and stuff. You know what I mean? They weren't, they wouldn't hold up today the way they do in these Mount Rush more images we get of them. And I know people, you know, they're all into, you know, into that, but it's a myth. It's a cartoon. We, we want to feel the best about ourselves we can. And that's natural. And America's done some great things in the world. There's no question of that. And, and the reason that we have is because we were a people that came from all these other places. And that originally we shouldn't have done that, you know, and we shouldn't have like displaced the Native Americans and murdered them and put them in camps and on reservations. We did. That's our original sin that we never acknowledge. What if you're a Native American child and they're telling you to stand up and pledge allegiance to the flag? That's not your nation. That's not your flag. Your nation was destroyed you know, by a bunch of white dudes with guns who came here, you know, and gave you blankets with pestilence on it, you know, like to try to destroy you and steal your land and then brought in people from Africa to work that land and then got rich off it and sat back on the veranda and wrote a bunch of myths about how great a country we were. And that's the same thing they're trying to sell in these projects now. That's what it is. Let's re-up on that fantasy of America because the natives are getting restless, for lack of a better term. You know, that's their response to wokeism. That's why being wokeism is like a bad term, just like they, you know, turned liberalism in, into a bad term in the 80s. They, they're always in opposition of progress and culture and truth. Truth is the enemy of the GOP and the Republican mindset, you know, the new Republican Christo, Christo fascist, you know, mindset. Well, and the ironic thing is, is that if we drifted away from organized religion and more towards science, we would live longer and live healthier lives. You know, like part of the uh, resistance in progress for human history is those that have their faith and are just dead set on it, you know, like it's a cult. You know, they, they take it to that extreme. What, you were talking about how, like, we're sold the American ideology. My favorite one is, like, capitalism. I was taught capitalism is about choice. You won't have a choice if it's uh, socialism or communism. But you find out capitalism is about exploitation, whether it be resources, human labor. You know, I mean, when you look at it, fewer and fewer are benefiting, uh, while more and more are suffering. And, you know, another one that I, I learned about, didn't learn about it until college, was like Japanese internment camps. We did that after World War II. That happened. And we need to accept it so that it doesn't happen again. 
Absolutely. And we were heading in that direction. If Trump got reelected, you definitely would have had internment camps. You basically had that at the border, you know, Mm -hmm. but they would have gone one step further. You don't think Stephen Miller or some of those psychos, you Mm -hmm. know, would have started like people are disappearing and we're not going to ask why, you know, when we already don't know all the bad stuff that happened, you know, down there at the border. And it's insane. Lee Atwater was the guy in the 80s who really crafted a lot of this message for for Bush and, and you know, for Reagan. And he, he was sort of seen as a wunderkind of like, you know, conservative ideology. And behind the scenes, he was a freak, <laughs> you know, as all these guys are. They're always hypocrites, you know, like your Roger Stone, you know, who's who's guiding a lot of this MAGAism and a lot of this fascism. You know, he's a total psychopath. He's a coke coked out like lunatic Batman villain, you know, with a tattoo of Richard Nixon on his back. And, and, but he's good at like, and he started a company, you know, with Paul Manafort and, and a guy named black, it was Manafort stone and black. And they became a lobbying firm for overseas, like dictators, you know, for Idi Amin and in the Philippines, um, Ferdinand Marcos was a client of theirs. You know, these guys that were raping and pillaging their countries, for lack of a better term. But basically, that's what they were doing. You know, they were taking all the money and killing people. And there were sanctions against them in this country. You know, people like Jimmy Carter and stuff were, you know, we had a history of standing up to this sort of thing internationally. And those guys formed a company in the 70s and said, hey, you know, we can represent you in D.C. and get them to go a little easy on you. And that's what they did. You know, that was that's how they began their political careers was being a lobbying firm for dictators, you know, for the worst of humanity and helping the worst of humanity, humanity navigate the corridors of Washington power. And there became a lot of money in that. And what we saw in Trumpism was was, you know, the Super Bowl of that. You know, all these guys came out of the woodwork and they're like, this idiot's going to get elected. Like, there's going to be no rules. We can literally do whatever we want. We can get Mike Flynn back into the government. You know, we can have Eric Prince train people on his ranch in Wyoming to set up our, our, our you know, enemies in D.C., our political enemies. There was a story that broke yesterday that listeners may find similar to things I've told you about how Donald Trump does business, you know, that he gets people in sexually compromised positions and then lords it over them and blackmails them, right? So a story broke yesterday in the Times that Eric Prince had run this operation against H.R. McMaster, who was Flynn's replacement, right, at the National Security Council or whatever the title is, right? He, he was the guy that like replaced Flynn and he already had its haters because he was kind of a globalist. They, they thought he was a globalist. You know, was, he was more middle of the road than the fascists they wanted in control. Right. So they didn't like him. They're like, we got to take this guy out. Right. But he was sort of like beyond, you know, he was a stand up guy, you know, so they didn't know what to do. So Eric Flynn had this operation where they train these people on a thing in Wyoming on his ranch. Like he's the Blackwater founder, in case people don't know. He's also the brother of Betsy DeVos, you know, who was Mm -hmm. the worst thing, you know, who to happen to the education department and who was so wealthy because their family's the Amway fortune that she had a yacht scheduler. You know, she had so many (laughs) yachts that she needed somebody to decide which one she was going to take out. And some of them are like on the Great Lakes. Imagine being so rich, you you, you know, 
you got a yacht in Michigan. Like just fucking fly to Nantucket. You know, take your yacht out on the ocean. You know, what do you need a super yacht on the Great Lakes? And remind me to go on a rant about Elon Musk's new yacht, which he just purchased this week, which was five hundred million dollars and has a trailer yacht to super yacht to follow it. <laughs> you know, when you talk about progress and not paying taxes. You know, the guy who's probably putting more potholes on American roads than anyone else. You know, Amazon trucks are 24 seven pounding the roads of America and the dude's not paying a dime for upkeep and he's buying a $500 million yacht. That's the reasons Russians had a revolution. You know, you want to talk about how socialism and communism happens, you know, keep it up, keep it up and see what happens, you know, (laughs) but um, back to Eric Prince. So he was training these operatives, bringing in spies and he brought like X, like M6 or whatever it is, like British spies and had all these you know, guys that were really good in this sort of international spycraft come in and train people to set people up. And they used honeypots. You know, they use attractive women to set up guys. You know, they find out where they're going to eat dinner. So somebody fed, you know, inside information to this woman that had been hired by it's not ProPublica. It's the uh, Veritas Project Veritas, I believe. They hired this this woman, right? And she was fed this inside information that McMaster eats at this particular restaurant in D.C. And then she went in there and tried to set him up, you know, sat next to him at the bar and like, hey, how you doing? You know, oh, you work for Trump? Yeah, he's a real scumbag, isn't he? You know, they were trying to get him to talk smack about Trump and he didn't fall for it. He never did. And then he left anyway. So the operation didn't happen. But that's what Trump did. That's Trump's playbook. You know, it's not playing fair. It's not the level play field with playing field, which seems to be the theme of this podcast. It's about using any sort of vice, any advantage I have to get the upper, you know, get the upper hand so I can steal the most money and then I can crush my opponents. With Trump, it wasn't always about winning he likes to talk about winning. He doesn't just want to want. He's already won. You know, he, he inherited $700 million from his old man. Well, if I inherited $700 million, you would never hear from me again. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Because okay? $500 million would go to like every animal shelter in the country and homeless shelter and stuff. And the rest would go to feed like arts education for children or whatever, you know, and then I'd take $2 million and go live on an island somewhere for the rest of my life. Like, I don't need that much money. And I could never enjoy a dime of it, knowing the amount of suffering that's happening in this world. And that's also part of our culture is that we celebrate these guys. You know, Elon Musk was hosting SNL last night. What has Elon Musk done for the people of America? You know, besides his running a scam on like Bitcoin and Dogecoin, which he tanked yesterday, by the way. He sent out <laughs> saw a- that coming. Yep. We called that. He tanked it. And I told my buddies, like, you're not going to be a trillionaire. You know, don't spend the whole GameStop paycheck on Dogecoin, bro. You know, <laughs> you'll never get out of mom's basement if you do. And they're like, oh, you're a slave to, you know, fungible banking, bro. You know, <laughs> like it's it's insane. But we celebrate that. There are great heroes in this country or, you know, trillionaires and and billionaires and obviously that has some allure like who doesn't want to have a bunch of ferraris and stuff you know but how much of that stuff do you need in opposition to people suffering because you can't enjoy it that much you know manhattan is you know has the most concentrated wealth of probably anywhere in the world and you walk out on the streets and people are sleeping everywhere now you know you walk out of fifth avenue and you know Make a right onto 72nd Street and there's going to be somebody like before you get to Madison, you're going to see somebody on the street who has nothing. 
you know, who's carrying all their positions, possessions in a bag, you know, and haven't, you know, had an opportunity to clean themselves up in a long time. You know, it's, it, you know, I, I can't deal with that. That's not a healthy society. I don't care how much money I make. I can't look past something like that because you're only here for a, a blink of an eye anyway. You know, you think this is a long life. It ain't, you know, as you know, you know, you lost your father young. You know, it's like we don't yeah. know how much time we have and you can't take that money with you. But love never dies. You know, doing kind, esteemable acts never dies. And that's a currency that does transfer. You know, that's worth more than Bitcoin or Dogecoin or whatever the hell it's called. <laughs> well, and you know what's better than indulging on yourself? It's investing in other people and seeing them succeed. That is sustainable happiness. You know, as happy as my dad was living in this world, he was also in pain every day because he knew, you know, I got everything I need. I have my family. I have my music. I have what I need to get through the day. But if I'm mad, how mad is somebody else that has nothing? You know, that's part of the frustration for me. I'm comfortable. I'm good. And I'll figure it out. You know, I'm smart enough and have the resources, the, the support system to get to where I want to go. What about for the person that doesn't have that? You know, that that didn't have two great parents growing up, that didn't have the education that I did. You know, let, let's use the privilege that we have to build a better America for everybody else around us. And then we'll be thanked for it. You know, like that's that's the entire ideology. It's going to help everybody. You know, I'm, I'm a holistic problem solver. And, and at this point, we need that kind of approach. Absolutely, man. Well said, Jimmy. You yeah. know, and, and, you know, I learned from Oprah, like the fastest way to make your dreams come true is to help somebody else's dream come true. Yeah. And I got to work with her a couple of times. I worked with her in the 90s. And uh, then again, and uh, probably it was 2010, and it was the 10th anniversary of O Magazine. And she did a one woman show. She was doing a one woman show at Radio City Music Hall. I got to be a part of it behind the scenes, you know, working with the talent. And she was directed by George C. Wolfe. And after we did this rehearsal, we went out, you know, we went into the house. I got to sit near George and she got on stage and did kind of a monologue. And it was a storytelling from her life. You know, it was a story. And it was about when she had been up for the role of Harpo in, in A Color Purple, which was a Steven Spielberg directed, like wonderful Oscar winning thing for what she won an Oscar. And it made her, you know, an international sensation. Before that, she was a local host in Chicago, you know, and Quincy Jones had seen her on the local news and called up Spielberg and said, I found Harpo. You know, I found this character that they'd been having a hard time casting. You know, it was just one of those God moments where he happened to turn on the TV in his hotel room and saw her local morning talk show and was like, that's our person. Right. Yeah. So Oprah gets this audition, you know, flies to Hollywood and gets to audition for Steven Spielberg. Like, can you imagine what that would be like? <laughs> you know, like I, I couldn't handle that pressure. You know, I, I you know, I would be like, Oh, I would mess it up. Right. But she got to do it. And when she came back, she didn't hear anything for a while. And then she heard that another, you know, sort of famous actress was up for the same role. And she goes, well, that's it. You know, I'm not going to get the part. Obviously, you know, they're going to give it to such and such. And she had felt bad about her weight. So she she checked into like a you know, she said, maybe it's because of my weight or whatever. You know, it was just sort of making her feel bad about herself. So she checked into like a 
like not a rehab isn't the right term, but like a, you know, like a, uh, a spa or, you know, a place where you go stay and work on your, your, your health, right. And right. try to lose weight. So she went to this thing and she was on a jogging track. They made them go out on a jogging track every day, you know, as part of the routine. And she's out there on the jogging track and she's thinking about like this role that she wants so bad, which is like an attachment, you know, from a spiritual point of view, when you attach yourself to desire, you're going to suffer. You know, that's what the Buddha taught us. Like a, a, attachment is is the root of all suffering. You know, desiring, thinking if I get this other thing, it's going to make me whole will only cause suffering. It's an illusion because you think it'll make you happy. And sometimes you get a temporary burst of excitement from it. But that's not true happiness. True happiness is found within and in helping others, you know, as you just said. Right. But so she's got this attachment and she kind of knows better. And she's struggling with this stuff as she's jogging around the track. And then finally, it hits her like an epiphany. She goes, you know what? If I'm not meant to have this part, let me not have this part. Let this other actress get this part. And she meant it, you know, and she said, if this actress gets this part, let her be the greatest Harpo that's ever existed. You know, let her just like totally do an amazing job. And she let it go. And at the second she let it go and had that revelation, somebody comes running out from like the office and they're like, Miss Winfrey, Miss Winfrey, there's a phone <laughs> call for you. Right. And she gets off the track and goes down into the office, picks up the phone. And the guy goes, hello, this is Steven Spielberg. I heard you're at a fat camp. I need you to not lose any more weight because you're playing Harpo in the color purple. Mm. Boom. So the moment she let it go was the moment the universe gave her what she wanted most, you know? And that's a hard lesson to learn, but it's like she wanted what was best for somebody else. And then she got what was best for her and everybody else, you know? it's hard to come to those realizations when you're chasing things all the time, you know, and we're in a culture where we're taught to like look down on the, on the countries that don't have a lot of stuff. You you know, you go, go to like Papua New Guinea or some of these places and the people are a lot happier. You know, you, you you look, you look at, go watch some videos and stuff and you see kids running around with smiles on their face. You see people respecting each other and their elders and living together, you know, several generations living together and and sort of being tied to their traditions. And, you know, Joseph Campbell speaks about this stuff, too. You know, the culture and the power of myth and stuff. We've lost a lot of that. Our myths are now trillionaires, you know, like Elon Musk is trying to become a hero. And he is to these kids, you know, and yeah, it's cool. You made a fast electric car, you know, that doesn't have a spare tire and sometimes blows up, you know, like, all right, you're a hero, buddy, you know, like, but, and you wouldn't put on a mask, you know, and you influenced a bunch of other people to not put on a mask. We're in a country where 40 year old men will put on a Spider-Man costume and go to Comic-Con, right? But they won't put on a mask and walk into CVS. We have a country where people are filling plastic bags full of gasoline, as if that's, you know, more environmentally conscious, you know, like less me, more we. That's the best way to summarize it. You want to find happiness? Try to build a community where everyone is able to, you know, pursue their ambitions, at least have a shot at pursuing their ambitions. Because if you don't create that kind of movement for those around you, it's not going to happen for yourself either. Absolutely. And you're in a richer world when when everybody gets to live to their full potential and go after their dreams. You know, that's one of the constant themes I talk about all the time. It's like scales on a fish, man. If the sun hits it right, it makes a rainbow. You know, it's this beautiful thing. And everybody has a has a role in that. 
you know, and that's part of the tragedy of what's happening now is that they're sort of indoctrinating generations into this hate and they're spending all their time hating the other and folks on the left, you know, folks like me or whatever that, you know, would normally be pursuing more creative things or spending all our time just being like, hey, look what's happening. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I know it's by choice, but I feel obligated like Michael Moore. I was at an event with Michael Moore a couple of years ago, uh, documentary Critics Choice Documentary Awards that I, I do every year. And he said, look, if you're an artist, you're a writer, you're a filmmaker like that other project you're working on, put it aside for now. You know, there'll be time for that down the road. If you have a skill, put it in service of defeating Trump and Trumpism or there's nothing on the other side of this. You know, and I feel the same way. You, you know, it's like it's not over yet. We have to we have to see this thing out and really make sure we establish who we are and, and shine a light on this injustice. Otherwise, it's going to snowball and people are going to suffer. And there's going to be some of that ahead anyway. Like you said, the GOP, you know, it's now all about, you know, greed is good. You know, that was the 80s GOP. The old GOP was not that way. Greenwich, Connecticut is one of the most conservative areas. That's where the Bushes come from. You know, their father was Prescott Bush. He was a senator from Connecticut. That's kind of the bastion of old waspy white males and money, right? And back in the day, in the 60s and 70s, if you were a CEO for, of a company, because all those guys were like CEOs on Wall Street and, you know, New York companies, advertising companies and all this stuff. And they would live in, in Greenwich, which is a very fancy suburb of New York City. Right. And back then, like you would make, you know, 200 times what your lowest amount you know, employee did. Now it's like 2000 times, you know, the, <laughs> the CEO makes 80 million, you know, and the lowest employee makes 40,000. It used to be like you weren't that the golf, you know, you, you would make sure everybody got to a minimum. You know, that was the whole thing. You worked for this company, you gave your life to it. Like we took care of you. That, that became obsolete. But those guys, you know, in, in, in Greenwich in particular, it was all about, looking over your your hedgerows at, at your neighbors kind of thing. Nobody had like really big bushes or walls on their properties. They all kind of saw each other. All these CEOs, there would be a contest where they would sort of outdo each other to see who could wear the more modest watch, right? They would wear Timexes and things, you know, Seikos or whatever. You know, it wasn't like, give me the blingiest Rolex, you know, Patak Philippe thing that it is now. Now they have like everybody buys a house there, all these hedge fund guys, and they put the big walls around them. They call them Greenwich walls now. You know, they put these big wooden fences around their property so you can't see in. You can't see who lives there. You know, there was a shift in thinking, like, I'm going to get as much as I can for myself. I'm going to cut myself off from the community and I'm just going to like conspicuously consume as much as I can. And I bring up George Bush, George H.W. Bush, right? George Bush's dad, his nickname at the Greenwich Country Club and when he was in prep school was have half, mm. have half, because somebody would say, you know, hey, George, that looks like a nice sandwich. And he'd go have half. Mm. That was his initial, you know, instinct was have half. And that that guy, you know, he grew up as conservative and as wealthy as, as it gets in this country. But there was an, an ingrained attitude of you don't flaunt it. My grandmother 
paternal grandmother, Castler, Rosemary Castler was a Reynolds. She was from a very wealthy family when she was a kid. And when I was like 18, I was staying with her in the summer for a while. And I'd bought these sunglasses, these $150 sunglasses, <laughs> these Revo mm-hmm. sunglasses, you know, and I didn't have any money. I was an 18 year old kid. $150 was a lot of money <laughs> to spend on sunglasses in 1989. You know, it still is. But then it was just like ridiculous. And we were talking one day and I said, yeah, I bought these sunglasses. They were $150. Cause I was, I came from nothing, even though my grandma was rich. I lived with my mom. I, I didn't have a lot of wealth when I was a kid and you become very label conscious. You know, it was the eighties. It was about blingy stuff and trying to get this expensive labels, you know? So I bought them cause I was into skiing and I thought I'd look really cool. And she was like, that's ridiculous. You know, and she's like, I grew up with money and we didn't flaunt it. You know, she was very old money. She went, you know, was educated in Manhattan and her family had a limo and she would make the limo drop her off like two blocks away and like walk to school. So the other kids didn't resent her and stuff, which was kind of a weird analogy. You know, I was like, you still got it going on. But I, (laughs) I got the point. Old money wasp, like you didn't get these big giant McMansions. You know, a decent looking house was enough. Now these people get a 70,000 square foot home. Like, what do you need that for? Not to mention the environmental footprint of heating and cooling a house like that, you know, because houses are like boats or cars. They use energy. They're actually bigger polluters than a lot of them, (laughs) especially buildings in Manhattan. You know, people don't talk about that much. But uh, and by the way, Trump was the biggest offender of the environmental laws for his buildings in, in New York City. They put in these laws where they had to put these clean scrubbers, you know, on the on the diesel fuel, which is what you heat, you know, home heating oil, you know, so they scrub this waste and Trump would never participate in that. And they would just (laughs) rack up the fines. Like they didn't even care, you know? So uh, it all goes back to that conspicuous consumption, you know? And, and, and that's, that's become a disease in our culture. That's become a really dangerous thing. And it, it ties into like people rushing out to buy all this gas, First of all, you shouldn't be driving a car that gets 12 miles to the gallon now. Like we're the assholes that have been doing that for 30 years. In Europe, they've been they've been paying five dollars a gas, you know, a gallon for gas since the 80s. And they drive tiny cars because they don't need to use all this stuff. And it's not like, well, we can use as much as we want. The whole world suffers. You know, when you pollute the world, the whole world suffers. There's only a finite amount of these limited resources, you know, and we're using more than our fair share and flaunting it. And we're not doing our part as a people. And that was always kind of us doing that and it affecting the rest of the world. Now it's us doing that and it's affecting our neighbors here at home. You know, we, we've talked about American imperialism on this show before one of the issues with capitalism and the way that system works it's an exploitation of resources it's one of the reasons why we're in the middle east is so that we can extract you know the fuel that we need to to fuel this american ideology and you were talking about like old money and how they don't really brag about their wealth one of the most telling speeches in 2016 before trump got elected was michael bloomberg who you're well aware of being uh from new york he talked about how Smart people don't have to say they're smart. They just are. Trump says he's smart. You know, I use the best words. He says that because he wants to be validated. You know, instead of just using them, he has to brag about how great his words are. That's the difference. That's the difference between confidence and being an arrogant asshole. You know, like, I think we need to get back to humbling ourselves. Aspire to intelligence. Don't be belittled by it. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, and, and 
ignorance became, you know, became a selling point of the whole MAGA movement. You know, they celebrated idiocy and, and conspicuous consumption has always been Trump's thing. You know, like they say, he's the poor guy's idea of what a rich guy is. You know, the gold <laughs> flake and all the ridiculous like stuff is horrible. If you ever see pictures of his house, it's horrible. And it was all an illusion. His office was threadbare. When they started making the, you know, The Apprentice, they had to rent the furniture for the Trump organization. <laughs> what they had in there was so junky, you know, the whole thing was like a mom and pop shop that was like a grift on the outside world then he'd call up the new york times and be like look at my opulent penthouse that i live in you know which was a cheaply constructed building he'd buy cheap marble like everything was gold flake it was not nothing is real he gave roy Cohn a fake watch you know the only thing he'd ever given roy he never paid him for all the stuff <laughs> all the years and at the end he gave him a fake rolex you know on his deathbed he didn't even go see him you know he would call tabloids as john Barron and like tout, tout you know his wealth which was a, a myth hey, look real wealthy people don't want you knowing how much money they have i, I live in a town that, you know, and in a county that has a lot of really wealthy people, there's five or six billionaires in the town I live in. Those guys don't want you knowing where they live and they don't want you knowing how much money they have. Even guys like Bloomberg, who obviously is a billionaire or whatever, like part of it is out of decorum. And part of it is if, like, you really got it like that. You don't want everybody knowing that you got it like that, you know, because all they do is ask you for it. But, um, you know, it's, it's again, it's a, it's a disease and a sickness, you know, but uh we're coming up on the end of the show. It's another week. We got our nice T-shirts on. Our, our viewers at home can't see that, but I'm wearing an old Castler podcast T-shirt. What are you wearing? Keb Mo. I got one for uh, Keb Mo. It was his masking uh, shirt, and it's got on the bottom here. Um, if you can read this, you're standing too close. You know, yeah. so it, it enabled the social uh, distancing thing, and uh, he's written songs like "Put a Woman in Charge." You know, he's a very progressive artist, and. Big fan of uh, Kebmo. Keb's a man. He just played City Winery here in New York City last week. It was good to see him out there again. I follow him on Instagram. I've done a lot of gigs with him. I just did a gig with him and Cindy Lauper not long ago. Oh, cool. Uh, 2016. Uh, my favorite Kebmo story is we were doing a benefit for uh, sort of like an end to gun violence after after the horrible shooting involving Gabby Giffords, you know, where where too many people were killed that day. And we went out to Tucson, Arizona to do this big, like um, progressive fundraiser right afterwards. It was the beginning of March. It was right before the tsunami in, J in uh, Japan. And uh, we had Crosby, Stills and Nash and Jackson Brown and Nils Lofgren and all these great guys and Keb Moe. And I was on tour with Jackson as his road manager. And we were doing a show in Thousand Oaks, and uh, like on a Friday night and the gig was Saturday night in, in, in Tucson. Right. And so we, we were like, all right, we're going to pick up Keb Mo. He's doing a gig at this club outside of LA. We're going to pick him up on the way to Tucson, you know, and we get on the tour bus and like, I just hopped on the leg of a tour. So I, I didn't have a bunk on that bed. I was doing like a one off and then we were taking a break and Keb didn't have a thing. So we leave the gig with Jackson. We drive a couple hours and pick him up. It might've been San Diego or something. We pick him up and like, it's a long, it's like an overnight drive to Tucson. It's a long drive to Tucson from LA. So he and I both didn't, you know, we didn't, couldn't go to sleep. Everybody else went to sleep and we sat up in the front of the bus and like ate cereal and talked about blues all night and stuff. And it was just awesome. You know, he's such a cool guy and he'd always be like, Hey, I ain't mad at you. That's what he'd always say. He'd be like, hey, I'm dating this girl. I ain't mad at you. <laughs> like, and he's a guitar freak. I mean, he's obviously one of the great guitar players. But um, 
he's also loves gear and guitars and stuff. And I just saw him playing a PRS guitar, which is a guitar I play a lot. And uh, very cool, very cool guy. Great, um, great carrier of the blues. You know, just a guy who's really like carrying the the traditions of, of blues forward and very progressive. And he he has this woman he writes songs with. She lives in Colorado. I got to meet her too. You know, he writes as a, as part of a team. And uh, it's an incredible, dude. I didn't mean to spend the last few minutes of the podcast talking about Keb Mo, but Keb Mo's a good dude, <laughs> so he's worthy of it. I'm just trying to think if we missed anything crazy that's going on. There's so much going on. Liz Cheney got ousted, right? We covered that. Elise right. Stefanik is now the number third in charge. Another troll, you know, who knows better, who went to Harvard, who was a- against Trump in the beginning. She was against the Muslim ban and all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, read the tea leaves and said, oh, the only way is throwing in with this party. So she did it. We're not out of the woods yet, folks. Some things are coming down. There's going to be a Matt Getz indictment soon. There just has to be. Um, so that's something to look forward to. The SDNY replaced the uh, corruption prosecutor who had brought the case against Giuliani this week. He, you know, he cashed in and went to a white shoe uh, law firm, as they do. You know, the SDNY is you know, a reputable place. And a lot of, it always has its defenders, its XNDNY guys come out and get you sound bites ahead of any kind of scandal like that. But bottom line is they go there to train how to defend, you know, criminals, wealthy criminals, you know, because they prosecute the poorer people, you know, and a few examples of wealthy people. And then they cash in and go to firms where guys pay them to go, hey, make sure that doesn't happen to me. (laughs) You know, when they come to indict me, tell me what they're going to do. Let me use your expertise to, uh, you know, defend myself. And that's what this guy did. You know, now he's going to a big firm that defends, uh, you know, corrupt criminals. Uh, wealthy criminals. And that's the scam. You know, that's the two Americas. There's two systems of justice in this America. So don't hold your breath, but hopefully there will be something coming from for Giuliani. And by no means do I am I implying that the investigation is over. I know it's continuing. They promoted a woman in this guy's place. So it's probably a good thing in the end. But bear in mind, there's other people in New York City who've done things with Rudy Giuliani, who've done things like Trump. You know, you don't put up buildings in New York City and and not get involved with a certain amount of corruption and malfeasance. It's just the nature of the beast. You know, it's it's a city that's at best very sympathetic to corruption (laughs) and a certain way of doing business, you know, that sort of benefits those with money and power that happen to be white. So that's where we're at. Enough of my rap. Um, Hope you guys all have a great week. Jimmy, thanks for joining me once again. We look forward to next week. And thanks, everybody, for, for making this a successful podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Be well.